So what we've done is just become their big sisters, their aunties, um, and we just love on them and give them some of the things that they need to make sure that they can qualify, if you will, to have their children return. So for example, today, when I finish talking with you, I'm going down to show this mom how to use an Uber card. We bought her a $200 Uber card because her car broke down. She couldn't get to visit. She couldn't get to the grocery store. And so I have to show her how to use an Uber card. (laughs) I mean, but, but that's what we do. Or when her car broke down, hey, she called the tow truck. We paid for the tow to get the car off the freeway. Hello, beautiful humans and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and welcome to another episode of Let's Give a Damn. On this show, I have conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. I'm so incredibly glad that you decided to show up today. Thank you so much for being here. My guest today is the wonderful and wise Carol Mitchell, and she's hella smart. She holds a Juris Doctor from Seattle University School of Law, a Master of Arts in Organizational Systems Renewal from Seattle University, and a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from the University of Washington, Seattle. Carol has more than 20 years of public sector leadership experience, having served most recently in Pierce County, Washington. Her primary responsibility was to improve outcomes for individuals with behavioral health and substance use conditions who were caught up in the grip of the criminal justice system. Most recently, she founded the Institute for Black Justice in September of 2020. The purpose of the IBJ is to relentlessly pursue equity and justice for all. Earlier in 2020, she was fired from a job, a job that she loved. And what I love is that Carol talks about that she was fired so that she could find her purpose and find her purpose she did. We also talk about her upbringing, her family, faith, and the incredible work she is already doing and plans to do at the Institute for Black Justice. I truly enjoyed this conversation from beginning to end. I learned so much from Carol, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we get into this conversation, as always, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from each and every one of you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the wonderful Carol Mitchell. Let's go. It's so wonderful to have Carol Mitchell on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Carol, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. It's such a, an opportunity to be here. I'm, I'm excited. My heart is racing. I am on your show and, and I just, I'm just really feeling fortunate at the moment to be well, here. Thank you. The, the, the fortunate feelings are reciprocated. I feel so honored to be talking with you. Uh, our mutual friend, John Lowry, who introduced us, um, a wonderful damn giver himself, and I respect his opinion. 
and he, you know, and I don't usually take, uh, I want to make this clear on the show because that I don't want to start getting a thousand unsolicited <laughs> guest, uh, you know, recommendations, but every once in a while I ask people like, Hey, if I have a week or two open, who should I have on? And John was pushing you, you know, really hard. He said, I, you know, so respect, uh, Carol and the work that Carol's doing, you need to have her on. And as I like started poking around on the internet, I was like, yes, I think I do. I think this is someone that I really, you know, want to talk to, need to talk to. And I'm real excited to talk to you today about your story, about the work that you've done. And, and most recently, which we'll get to, uh, in the conversation, the Institute for black justice, um, so many great things. It's a new organization, but it seems like so many great things are already happening. And, I have no doubt that under your leadership and the team that you're building, that that will continue to flourish. So again, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Um, Thank you. Let's begin. I, I, I like to go back all the way to the beginning uh, when I have these conversations because a lot of a lot of interviews start with like present day. But if people have never heard of Carol, it so helps to know where you've come from, the people and places that have shaped you, because that speaks so, I am not, I am not, uh, you can't look at Nick in a vacuum in 2021. So many things have happened in my life that have broken me and that have, you know, made me whole and that have healed me and that have hurt me, that made me who I am today. So I always love to go back to the beginning to hear some of the begin, the origin story, the Genesis story of uh, Carol Mitchell. So go back as far as you want to, but just start talking about who you are, where you came from, the people, places, and things that shaped you. I want to hear all about it, and then we'll get into some of the work that you're doing currently. Well, thank you, Nick. Again, I I cannot express how grateful I feel for this moment. And as I, as I mentioned to you, as we were preparing for today, I feel like this is a God moment because mm. there's just really no rational reason why you and I should be talking this morning this morning other than the fact that God ordained it I just have to give shout out to my creator I would say that my story begins in a little town outside of Columbus Georgia where my mother was born and where my first five or six years of life, which I think most people would say, those are the years, right, that really shape your future. That's where I started my life amongst Geechee Gullah people. And for those who don't know very much about the, the Geechees, they were the descendants of slaves who, for the most part, started their life in enslavement, I should say, outside of the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And my mother would always say, Grandpa was a saltwater Geechee. And I never understood what that meant. But my grandmother had a lot of beautiful African cultural ways of being and thinking. She was the youngest of 16 children. And I was tucked up under her so tightly, I could, I could oftentimes feel her very heart beating. And sometimes I thought her heart was my heart. She was not educated. I think maybe she got through the third grade, but she was incredibly 
kind, caring, and entrepreneurial. She ran this little store inside of her shotgun house. You know, those houses where you see the front door and you can see the back door when you open the front door. Yep, yep, <laughs> that yep. Was, that was, we called her Nana. And so my Nana Ruby ran this little store inside of her house because she figured something out that in the early 1960s at probably the height of civil rights, the civil rights movement, it's not the first civil rights movement, but that particular movement, she discovered that it was really unpleasant for people of African descent to go into town and interact with people who were white because the tensions were so high. And so she was a middle woman. She would take the orders of the black folk that lived and sharecropped in that little town and go into town and deal with all the negativity that was directed toward black folk at the time. And then she would add one penny to everything she sold. And Mm. I watched that entrepreneurial spirit of hers survive in some of the toughest surroundings. My mother used to remind us that she didn't finish high school because she was pulled out of school every year to shake peanuts. She never picked cotton, but she was peanuts and pecan harvesting most of her middle school years on up. And so I grew up with this Geechee Gullah, take care of the community, be self-sufficient, self-sustaining, take care of yourself, make the best of what you have available. And on the other side was my dad, who was this Army Sergeant Tuskegee Institute connected, Morehouse connected family from Atlanta. And so they sort of looked down on my mother and her country cousins and her sharecropper origins because they were the black upper class. Uh, So I had both of those value systems operating when my father moved us from Georgia to Fort Lewis, Washington in 1965. And I grew up in Washington. So let me stop there and see how you want, where you want to go next. I've taken you to Georgia and now to Washington state. There's so much there. Um, for one, how did your how did your parents meet? My mother was working as a cook in a little restaurant near the base, near Fort Benning, Georgia. And my father apparently came in to get some pork chops <laughs> and came out with my mother. <laughs> Amazing. That's how they met. She was behind the, you know, the counter cooking and serving and he saw her and my mother is uh, like many people of African American descent. Her father was actually half white. And so my mother was, had hair that she could sit on at the time and was this beautiful woman that my father just fell in love with immediately. And they got married and here we are, there are nine children in our family and I'm number five. 
I come from a family of 12 children. Oh, so, so you know. I know I, I do know. <laughs> and we are so rare. I have I have three children myself, my my amazing uh, partner and wife and I. And I cannot imagine like three. I love I love my kiddos. They're amazing. But I cannot imagine having more than three. Three is so many children. Three, you are trying to keep three humans alive day in and day out. You're trying to shepherd them. You're trying to point them in the right direction, right? You're trying not to, you know, I mean, not to get on their nerves too much. And you're trying to like, you know, work with them. And three is so much work. And then my parents went, you know, I grew up with 11 siblings and we're all still around. That's who I'm visiting, you know, right now is... The, the remaining two are coming in a couple of days. And so all 12 of us will be here. We're all alive, all well. Wow. Six of us, five of us are married. Uh, no, six of us are married. Four of us have kids. Still six need to get married off at some point. Maybe not. And so I understand, you know, so you're fifth. I'm the number two. So I was right at the top there. Um how was that experience? So, um, you know, nine kids, you're, sub, right, you know, in the middle as you can be for nine kids. You're right there in the middle. How was that experience? And and where are all of your siblings now? Well, um, I was the well-adjusted middle child. <laughs> At least that's the, that's the narrative I choose to believe. I'll, be, I'll believe it too. <laughs> My brothers and sisters may say have a different story to tell about that, but I, I seven of my well, I guess it would be six of my siblings are still alive. Two of my brothers passed away mm. early, I would say, and unfortunately, both of them had pretty difficult lives, faced addiction and incarceration. It's a, it's a story that too many African-American families have to tell about their, the men in their families in particular. And I really think that both of my brothers who passed away before their, well, one before his 60th birthday and the other passed away a year ago on Mother's Day of mm. lung cancer, uh, my eldest brother. I think both of them as is true with many families, had issues of early trauma, um, probably issues of mental health, clearly of substance use disorders that were never really treated. And so they self-medicated. And when you self-medicate, you, you, you don't really have the right prescription for what ails you. And it was not it was not something in our big black family that we ever talked about mental health or trauma or uh, physical pain from an injury that had never healed. Uh, our family never really went to the doctor when we were in Georgia. We went to my Nana and she yeah. would have some remedy, right? Some herbal thing, remedy that, would cure you or kill you. That's what she used to say. <laughs> if this doesn't cure you, it'll kill you. Either way, your problem will be solved. Your problem will be gone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so uh, growing up in that family, 
we had these competing messages, Nick. One from my mother, who was a Southern Baptist, gospel singing, stay at home, do right by your man kind of woman. And then my dad, whose family had, his sisters had gone to college, his brothers were uh, officers in the army. One of my uncles was the first African-American sheriff of his little town in Georgia. They were council members and they were overachievers. And so my dad would listen to my mom saying, okay, all the girls, you need to know how to cut up a chicken, fry it, make a pot of rice and keep your house clean. Those were sort of her Geechee girl rules. And by the way, Nick, I can cut up a chicken, a whole chicken. I believe you. And make a pot of rice. (laughs) (laughs) But her message was get ready for marriage. My father, because he was a little bit more easygoing and soft-spoken than my mother, would just whisper out of her presence. And don't forget to get an education while you're doing that. Mm. And so we prepared for, quote, domestic life. And at the same time, my father was saying, "Uh uh-uh, you got to have more going on for yourself than that, especially the girls. So five of us went to college. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Those those competing messages there, um, were were, were there fights about that between the two of them or was was there an allowance for, for mom to say this and then dad to add on and say also get an education right was that was there competition there or or was there you know deference to each other to get you know to share what they wanted their kids to go on and do eventually my mother came around because my father i think because my father saw the the freedom that came with more education He had been all over the world in the army. He spent 26 years of his life in service to our country. And he knew that there was more to life than just frying the chicken and making a pot of rice for his daughters. And so of the the four girls in our family, three of us went to college and two of us earned graduate degrees, largely because my mother finally came around. And especially when I decided I was going off to law school. Now, what that did was it gave my mother bragging rights because women in her generation who didn't get a chance to even finish high school, what I noticed is they started, they, they start to live vicariously through their children And so whatever her daughters did, she would say, well, you know, they were raised right. Yes. (laughs) It's like if it had not been for her influence, we would never have made it through uh, our experiences in higher ed. That's that's and and you have you have two masters, right? So you have two graduate degrees, right? Or more. Am I missing one? I have. I have uh, my law degree, which is a Juris Doctor, yep. and then I have my Master's in Organizational Systems Renewal. Yeah, that's really great. I I feel like we're um, there's some parallels there. I'm I'm the son of an immigrant, Guatemalan immigrant, and so not that we have the same experience growing up, uh, but 
yeah, there was a fight there. There were a lot of competing uh, messages going on. My my parents are both, you know, high school educated, not college educated. And uh, I not one of my siblings so far has graduated from college, not for lack of trying, but mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of like I went to school. I was doing like my, my experience was I went to college and did so well, uh, like was doing well, like, you know, very high marks. And but I the reason I left was I was like, I'm paying you a whole lot of money. Like I didn't I wasn't going for, you know, for a law degree or whatever. Um, I was going for a theology degree at the time. Back then, I wanted oh, to be, wow. I, I thought I was going to be a pastor for forever and ever. And a lot has changed since then. Uh, but at the time, I was like, "You're, I'm spending a whole lot of money getting this education that I could give myself. Like, I was a big reader, was always studying, mm-hmm. always investigating, always researching. So I quit school, not because I was tired of it, but because I wanted to do more and I wanted to do it on my own terms, right? And so I went on to read, you know, I've read hundreds, thousands of books since then. Um, but it's it's kind of interesting that I, I was thinking about my family being here these few days, that, you know, many of my siblings are doing, you know, really amazing things in their careers. Mm-hmm. And they've all done it, school of hard knocks, uh, you know, you know, doing it without the degree, proving, having to prove themselves in other ways that people with degrees don't have to prove themselves because they have this degree, right? Like I went to school for four years, six years, eight years. I, this is how you know, I can do this. And my siblings and I have had to really prove it because we decided to, you know, not go the school route. Um, and again, many of them are doing, you know, really, really amazing things. But, um, so five of y'all, got a higher education despite the competing messaging, you know, which is, you know, really, really interesting. And again, I want to say I I missed this earlier, but I'm sorry for the loss of your two brothers. Um, that's Thank always, you. you know, super, super difficult. Um, so 196, you know, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, and I, I have to acknowledge my, my brother, James, who we called little man because he wasn't very tall, but he was extremely powerful. He was my great protector, my biggest fan. And in the at the height of his addiction, I was the one person that could tell him to sit down and shut up. Amazing. <laughs> we were, we were pretty older tight. Than you? He was two years older. And then I have a brother two years younger, and then another brother three years younger. So I was sandwiched between the boys, Yeah, which is another is another factor, I think, in the way that I operate in the world. Because while my mother was saying, learn how to cut up the chicken and fry it, I was hanging outside with my brothers throwing a football and getting bumped around. And in fact, we came up in this very tightly scripted religious environment. The girls weren't even allowed to wear pants outside of the house, unless you had a dress over it. We came up in that environment, no makeup, no jewelry, no pants, no open toed shoes, nothing that would be sexually provocative at all. This blouse I'm wearing today would be entirely inappropriate, (laughs) which is part of why, which is why I'm wearing it. (laughs) That's right. 
No, it looks great. You look, you look beautiful. You look amazing. <laughs> you, you know, we have another thing in common because yeah, that was another thing with my upbringing was a very uh, fundamentalist. What was the denominational mm -hmm. background? What was the background? Baptist, Pentecostal? What was well, it? My, my mother was a Southern Baptist. My father was African Methodist Episcopalian, but I grew up in the Pentecostal faith. So at some point they, it merged in the Church of God in Christ, which is where I grew up from the time I was like 12 until my 30s. So many, yeah, so much of my experience growing up was in that type of an environment. It wasn't Pentecostal or Methodist Episcopalian. It was, and it wasn't Southern Baptist. It was these fundamentalist, independent Baptist, you know, oh. denominations. Very, very little oversight. So the pastors could say and do whatever they want. You know, tons of, you know, tons of additions to scripture, right? You know, this one very vague scripture, we're going to write a whole book about it and put all <laughs> these rules on everybody, right? It, yeah, it was around dress. A lot of it was around dress. A lot of it was around mm -hmm. suppressing women um, mm -hmm. and giving men more authority. And we could talk all day about that, but we won't. But that's interesting that you also had a similar upbringing because that really affected again, I'm having all these like family, you know, feelings right now. We're talking about it, but I'm also, see, you know, seeing my family for the first time in a year uh, 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 as we begin to see the light at the end of this COVID tunnel, hopefully. But uh, I'm here and I'm seeing my siblings and I'm seeing my parents and I'm seeing so much freedom. Uh, even my parents who inflicted so many uh, of these rules and so much emotional, physical, spiritual pain and captivity on us. Like there's so much freedom now. They're not mm. captive to that. Uh, my siblings aren't captive to that. There's just, it's, it's been a really, my siblings and I, even, and even my parents were on uh, a, a wide spectrum of, of belief still, right? Whether it's political or spiritual or whatnot. But even in this like wide spectrum that I'm seeing, there's still so much freedom. And I'm, 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 I'm feeling a lot of gratitude these days that we were able to come out of that. And it seems like you have as well come out of that because it's so, it's so uh, uh, dangerous and damaging and it's hurt. We're seeing now, I think the, I don't, I, maybe we'll get into where you are in your faith now, but we're seeing so much of the pain and the hurt uh, being manifested in, you know, uh, uh, broken families, broken relationships. We're seeing, uh, now we're just beginning to see these religious and spiritual leaders being held accountable. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, but it's still so hard. <laughs> so many of them are, are, are being exposed and they're still not being held accountable because people are just blind, blindly worshiping them. It's, it's, I'm seeing a lot of hope, but I'm also seeing a lot of like terrible damage being done still. It's, it's a, it's a weird, uh, uh tension that we're living in right now. Yeah, I, 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 as I mentioned earlier, I, my sense of my purpose on the planet started to emerge when I was in my late twenties. By that time, I had three daughters, and I saw my marriage coming to an end. And I had been my mother's child. I had been the dutiful daughter, the stay-at-home mom, the put the education on the back burner, the fry the chicken and all of that uh, wife and mother and very actively engaged in my church and in service to my church at the time. 
And yet here I was going through the one experience that was so taboo in our belief system to be divorced. That was like, oh my gosh, that was a horrible thing. And then to to believe that you could never remarry. So that was that is where I was when I decided, okay, my mother's route uh, to the to success and happiness and joy, even though my mother and father were married well over 50 years when my father passed away. um, It worked for my mother. It did not work for me. And so then I said, well, let me see if dad's remedy or dad's recipe for success will work. And I started back to the University of Washington when I was 31 years old. Wow. And had my three daughters. We moved on the University of Washington campus and lived in family housing. Um, and then I went all the way through with my three daughters as a single parent all the way through law school. So bachelor's and then law school. And then I earned my master's just in 2012. I went back for my master's sort of out of order. But I can tell you that it was by faith through grace that I was able to do it. Um, A deep sense of having a connection to an omniscient, omnipotent, loving, caring, protective God. And I, I read that Bible so many days at that UW campus (laughs) when I was ready to quit, give up, throw in the towel and say, look, I could just collect welfare assistance, which was my right. I could just uh, survive on Medicaid and food stamps and stay home with my babies. I don't have to struggle this way. But Something greater than that for which I was born, some purpose that was inside of me, inspired me. And every single day I I was in prayer and praise. Those are two things I learned from growing up in that Pentecostal environment, the power of prayer and praise. And I still practice that every day. One of the first things I do is just show gratitude for even having the day available to me to do something that is purposeful. All of that amazing. It's inspiring me. It's, uh, it's reminding me, you know, uh, 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 you know, I, I too believe in a, uh, higher power. And I believe that this higher power and this great love, you know, brings really great people together. And I think that's why we're doing this today, but I have so much admiration for single parents again, as a, parent of three kids with an incredible partner and wife. Rebecca is the best parent ever and still every day is a struggle. Every day (laughs) is a battle uphill. You know, every once in a while we get some plateaus or some downhill, right? But it's mostly uphill. Ours are, our kids are six, eight, and nine right now. And it's all, it's tough right now. And so for you to not just be, again, it would still be, it would be hard work if you took the quote unquote easy route, you know, got some welfare assistance and raised those three girls. It'd still be hard, but you chose to go above and beyond and get two degrees, you know, living on a college campus with them. 
uh, incredible. And I and I'm glad not that not that being a I don't want to also downplay that even in 2021 being a a homemaker it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to do. And those that are called to you know you know creating a welcoming environment and taking care of the family at home, fantastic. It's a vocation but, just like mine. 100%. It's, it's, and and they've done those studies, right? Where it's worth like a, a mother or if, you know, most of the times it's it's women, but a, a, mm-hmm. a mother or a father that stays at home and takes care of all the home duties, that's worth six figures, right? They've done the math between, you know, cooking, cleaning, dry cleaning, laundry, taking the pets out, taking, you know, daycare. They've added all that up and it's well into the six figures. So yes, it's a wonderful vocation. But even, we haven't even gotten to your work yet. And it's already clear to me that yeah, I'm glad you chose. I'm glad you tried out your dad's route, right? The 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 going above and beyond just being a homemaker. Um uh Which I I I love my daughters, three daughters. I love my six grandchildren. I spend more time with them uh than I probably should because every single weekend my house has at least one and sometimes as many as all six of those grandchildren from the Amazing. oldest who is 22 down to the youngest who just turned four. And that four-year-old turns this house upside down. But that part of my grandmother and my great-grandmothers who you know sort of nurtured me being folded in close to her heart, family still matters. And I like being connected, even to my brothers and sisters who are are not here in Washington. Two of them live in Florida. In fact, I'm going to be leaving in a day or two to visit them because uh, two of us from here and two of them gather as often as we can. We didn't get together last year because of COVID. So I'm looking forward to seeing my younger brother and sister in just a few days. But family anchors me, and uh, my faith sustains me, Mm. even facing difficulties, dealing with COVID. Uh, We haven't gotten to how I was fired into my purpose yet. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm so excited to be getting there because I think it's just so, um, so wonderful. So 1965... Your dad takes you mm-hmm. all out to the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if John shared with you that I met John because we lived in Tacoma for four years. And oh. yeah, so I know I know Tacoma. I have a deep, deep love for Tacoma. I'm a big city boy. We finally made it to our, we finally made it to our, I think forever home, New York City. Uh, we live in New York, right in Manhattan. So that's like my, that's my wow. like five. That's where I wanna like, that's where I wanna be possibly for the rest of my life, I hope. But the one place that made me doubt that, though I've I've lived all over the world, I've lived all over the US, the one place that made me doubt my big city aspirations was Tacoma, Washington. I love Tacoma, Washington. Of all places, that's amazing. I love Tacoma, Washington so fucking much. It's not even funny. I think about it, I dream about it. It's such a beautiful place. How did you end up, because you were at UW, right, getting your degrees, how did you end up at Tacoma? Let's talk about, let's gush about Tacoma for a couple minutes before we get into you getting fired into your purpose in the Institute of yes. Black Justice. Tacoma, let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 
it's a little big city. That's how I like to look at it. It it has some incredible museums, our Washington State History Museum, our Tacoma Art Museum. We have a historical society. We have the University of Washington Tacoma campus now, which was just a total rehabilitation of a part of the city that was just old, rundown, abandoned warehouses. And now those warehouses and old industrial spaces are a college campus that thrives and yep. a beautiful one. We, I, I think it's a, because it's a port city, it's an international city. Yep. So I, I would argue with anyone that we've, we have some of the best international places to eat yep. in Tacoma, probably between Tacoma and Seattle than anywhere else in the world, I think, because we have that Pacific Rim flow of goodness that's happening all the time <laughs> and lots of Vietnamese, Cambodian, Thai, Japanese, Chinese food that is authentic and uh, districts that are dedicated, for example, to our Korean businesses. Yep. And I shop there. Believe it or not, I go to the Korean store for my collard greens. Love it. <laughs> I what know it's a, it's a funny thing that black folks shop at the Korean stores for, for collard greens, collard yeah. greens. but they have these really fresh vegetables that, you know, you just, you, you just have to go where, where the goodness is. That's right. What part of the city do you live in? I actually don't, I live in Tacoma per se, but I am out in East Pierce County, which is where my family grew up. Uh, because my father, being in the army, wanted to be really close to the base, to, to the join base, base yep. Lewis McCord. Yep. So we grew up way out in East Pierce County when the black population was minus five. <laughs> our family, our family brought you bumped the back it, black. You bumped it over to zero. Right. We bumped it up to, to zero. We, uh, along with one other Black family in 1966 or so, when we finally moved into this neighborhood where we grew up, I still live out here. I moved back out here about 12 years ago to be close to my mom. And then two of my siblings were all within about three miles of each other. Amazing. Right where we grew up. I just love it up there. I mean, the the not just the city itself in the surrounding area, but also like the views. You can, I mean, the mountain. You, you could be. The you water. could be. Yeah, you could be swimming in the sound in just a few minutes from anywhere in Tacoma. You know, and then many days a year, you just look up and you see Rainier, and it just, it just. I mean, it. There are so many times I would be driving around, and I would catch a glimpse of Rainier, and two things would happen. One is like. I live here. I live next to that ginormous rock. And sometimes it literally would bring me to tears. That's not hard to do. I'm a, I'm a big crier. I cry about everything, <laughs> but it would just bring me like, how is that possible that I live, you know, a few minutes away from that thing? Like, why isn't everybody in the world trying to move here? You know, like, and I'm glad not everybody does because it's already crowded enough, right? With this, with the spike in real estate in Seattle, I know that Tacoma, oh Tacoma is crazy right now. You can't find a house for under five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars. So, uh, uh, we don't want more people moving there right now. But um, all that to say, I just want to wrap it up by saying that, like, literally, there's only one place on the planet that has made me doubt 
my big city aspirations, and that is Tacoma because it's just such a you get everything like you said, little big city. You get everything you want in a big city um, in a small city setting. Not one day of my four years living there did I not run into somebody that I knew just randomly walking around coffee shop, restaurant, grocery store, always running into people. It was like a big cheers. Like it was a big yeah. city yeah. that had that cheers feel. And and it's, I think, because like you, I've, I've lived other places and visited other places around the world. The air quality yes. <laughs> is, especially now, I mean, Commencement Bay, back in the day was a super fun site and was terribly polluted by the waterfront industries of, you know, the early eras of, yep. of, of the 1890s and beyond when the railroads were coming in and the smelters and all of that polluting that happened in the water and the air. It used to be called the Tacoma aroma because you yep. could smell it, you know, sort of like Oklahoma city one time when I was driving through you knew you were there because yep. of the way it smelled. All of that is gone. Yep. And there are beautiful waterfront developments happening. The cleanup is ongoing, but we have a very vocal, vibrant climate justice population and voice that uh, forces our decision makers to always be thinking about climate change and climate and environmental justice. The Puyallup Nation is here. Yep. And the Nisqually Nation, the Muckleshoot Nation, we have this blending of Native American influence in the way that we, in spirituality. I will tell you that I, I read a, a stat, and I don't know how true it is, Nick, that Washington is the most unchurched state in the U.S. So, you know, we, we worship the environment, apparently, and we don't always choose to worship, quote, God. Yeah. But uh, I think there is a deep sense of spirituality and faith in the area because of our indigenous people. Yeah, there's a, a definite separation in the, nor in the Northwest uh, between lots of spiritual people, not, mm -hmm. ver not very many religious people. And I don't blame them. Like, I am a... I'm hanging on by a thread as a, as a, I would call myself a, a, a Christian, uh, but I'm hanging on by a thread. I will tell you, it's been a many years journey. I think I'm still in for the long haul, but it's been hard with a lot of the things that have happened these last few years. Like it's so easy to lose faith. So I don't blame them. Uh, it, what's interesting about what you just said is yes, there's so much of a push for the environment and, you know, loving, loving what, who and what we have around us and taking care of it. And I wonder, I wonder, what, what am I trying to say here? Like, okay, so there's not a lot of church people and the environment is really taken care of. And then you go to places mm -hmm. that are very church, like the South, and, yeah. and the environment is looked down, at, like taking care of the environment is not taken seriously, looked down upon. That's a horrible thing. That's a horrible thing, especially when if you are part of the Christian faith and you take that faith seriously, uh, and, and most faiths have this, but specifically talking about the Christian faith, there's a clear call to take care of our surrounding, to really take care of it, to nourish it and to replenish it and to take care of it. And yet you have to go to, if this stat is correct, you have to go to one of the most unchurched places in the entire U.S., <laughs> 
to get the cleanest air and to get the <laughs> yeah. most to get the most progressive you know programs and bills and laws regarding the 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 environment that's that's pretty messed up and i don't get that because it, it seems counterintuitive right that those of us who uh, profess to believe in a creator god and to understand that the earth was one of those initial creations along with humanity, and yet we disrespect that creation. It, it, that those two things don't make, they don't make sense to me why you would disrespect, especially another human being. So let's talk about humanity first, right. and then disrespect the environment, the land, the water, the air, um, when you profess to believe in a creator um, who created both. So those things don't square well with me. They, yeah. it, it all fits. I respect humanity. I respect the creation, whether it is humanity or whether it's environmental. Those go together with faith in my mind. No, they very much do. And, and you know, going back to our uh, I won't speak into you know some of the theology around creation that maybe you grew up with, but where I went, the way I grew up is very shitty theology around like what happens in the future, right? So it's <laughs> the whole earth's going to burn up, so no need to take care of it, right? That was it. Was like oh, you know, wow. he hellfire and brimstone is coming. God's going to destroy the earth. So there was this. There was less of an emphasis. In fact, there was a de-emphasis. Like they were de-emphasizing the care of creation because it's who it's the the end is coming soon. God's coming back, and the earth's going to burn. So why would you take care of it? And that is so that is so horrible because it's completely it's completely um, taking the Bible out of context and and these clear commands to take care of the earth like. If I don't know what happens after death, I, I am not sure what's happening in the future, but I do not think that this, that this loving creator would, is going to destroy this amazing thing that, that has been going on for millions of years. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not going to happen. That's, that is not what's ahead of us. So we, it is incumbent upon us to take care of it and to take care of it really, really well. We should be leading the effort on it. In my opinion, is like, if you do believe in this God, this creator, we should be leading the efforts to take care of the earth. Well, and, and think about it. If we, it's the same thing that happened when we decided that there were different levels of humanity, that one level yeah. of humanity could enslave another or could traffic another, or deny another rights. It's it's sort of this, this hierarchy of humanity that we operate under. And I think the same thing operates with the environment, that environment falls somewhere underneath the lowest level of humanity. And therefore, we can oppress it, we can uh, take advantage of it, we can abuse it, and who cares? Because if you're not at the top of that hierarchy, then uh, you're just not, you're ineligible yep. for some of the privileges and rights that belong to the top. And I think that same philosophy around the environment is exactly what creates conflict and oppression of humanity. That same kind of thought process that I don't have to care because as long as my needs are taken 
care of, as long as my children are provided for, then I can I can pump lead and arsenic into Commencement Bay because my children aren't going to be eating out of that water. Yep. It's there is a fundamental we could also talk for another hour. Maybe we'll talk about it for a minute. You know, it was just July 4, right? Uh, Freedom Day, Independence Day, which, you know, I, I, because I'm a very direct person, I I don't like to mince words and I usually call it, it's, it's a fake Independence Day. Uh, other more eloquent friends of mine have said, no, it's an aspirational day, right? That we're continuing mm. to aspire toward it. I don't have that much hope presently, but I like that. I like, but it's definitely not Independence Day. It's definitely not the day that we became a free nation, right? I saw this meme yesterday of, I don't know if it qualifies as a meme, but it was a uh, a Native American standing next to an enslaved black person. And, and over the Native American, it said, you know, we came to stolen land. And then over the enslaved black person's head, there was a, you know, a, a, a caption that said something like, and it, and, and the ground was, you know, tilled and everything was, was uh, built by people that were stolen from their land, right? This, it's such a horrible thing. It's such a horror. I mean, I literally, like, obviously I know all of that and that's such a simple way to put it, but it's like, yeah, we came and stole the land and then we stole people from their land to come build our land, right? And I'm saying our, again, I'm the son of an immigrant, like, so my parent, my, my dad is from Guatemala, but I'm still part of it, right? It has to be an hour. It has to be a we. Um, There's such a- there's such a go fundamental, ahead. there's such a fundamental misunderstanding of what, to go back to what you said about as long as my needs are met, then, then screw everybody else. There's such a fundamental misunderstanding of what the word freedom means. Freedom does not mean mm. that I get to do whatever the hell I want, that you get to do whatever the hell you want. Freedom has to take into account all of the people, places, and things around us living and not living because everything that I do affects you in the future. That has to, and, and I live in New York City, and you live in Washington. We are comp- we are on opposite ends of the country. You could not get further from each other, and yet everything I do, I have to believe, I have to realize that it's going to affect you and your kids and their kids and their kids in the future. We have to work together. True freedom is me making decisions based on what I need and what everybody else needs. That's true freedom. Tr- true freedom is not me making decisions for me in my own. I, I appreciate that so very much. And also the, the meme that you, you described, it's, it's a perfect, it, it, it's just a perfect prompt for me to talk about two things that I don't want to forget to mention. Please. Uh, number one, the climate justice work of Reverend Lennox Yearwood and the hip hop caucus. He spoke at our recent symposium, but it's, it's, uh, he has a podcast called The Coolest Show, and it's all about taking climate justice to the faith community, largely African-American, Black faith community, and getting people in some of these areas engaged and activated for climate justice and environmental justice. So I just want to give a nod yes. to the great work going on there. And then this question of of the selfish view that I think oftentimes we see acting itself out. Partly, partly it's about selfishness, partly, partly about fear, 
and all being sort of predicated on this view that there's a hierarchy of humanity. Until we let that go, it's, I think it's difficult for us to behave in a way that takes the whole community's uh, well-being as a, takes that as a priority, as a first principle. Is the whole community well when I make this decision? And if you can say yes to that, go forth. But if somehow the community is disadvantaged on one side and overly advantaged on the other, ultimately that has that's going to have an effect in the future, right? It's the principle of reaping and sowing. Yep. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. And so if you put inequality into your system and into your way of being, inequality is going to come back to you. And it may not show up in your bank account. It may show up in the fact that your child in the future has to face addiction or has to face inability to have children. It could come back some other way, but there's no way to be unequal on this side without having an effect. That is a God principle. There will be a payback, whether you invest in positive or negative, it's coming back to you. Um, I think the Eastern religions would say it's karma. Yep. But you can't, you're part of the cycle of life and the, the, the universe likes balance. And so it'll balance itself out. I saw a presentation, Nick, recently about these cycles that we go through every 50 years. And the presenter uh, from a group called the Algonquin Group, they are proponents of wealth building as a strategy for justice and equity. Uh, particularly black wealth building that mm -hmm. we should be focused on mm -hmm. owning rather than being owned and that that's how you get to justice through the dollar. Um, but, but their point is that every 50 years we go through this cycle of rebirth and then reaction to that birth, rebirthing of civil rights, if you will, then there's a backlash and a reaction to it and a depressing of all of that. And then there's another rebirth and passion towards civil rights and, and uh, equality. And then there's a backlash. And so he, they think we're in one of those cycles right now Wow. where all of the efforts that are happening right now to gain equality, we're also starting to see the backlash with voter suppression, yep. all of that, you know, with, with frankly, with, uh, oppressive laws that are coming down, um, the attitudes toward COVID-19 and, yep. you know, no masking and, and no vaccine, all of that is in response to progress that appears at least to have been made by people who were historically at the bottom of that humanity priority list. Yeah. I mean, we could talk, <laughs> I'm trying to bite my tongue right now because there's so Don't much that it. I want to say, um, in, in, in response to that. And I want to get to, uh, you know, your, your work at the Institute for black justice, but I a hundred percent agree with you. That's an interesting way to put it. And I, I want to please send me that presentation if, it, if it's available for me to watch, uh, or listen to. Yeah. I, 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 I completely agree that there's always, when there's this, uh, it's, it's, in, I hadn't heard of the 50 year cycle, but it makes sense. And 
yeah, I can totally see that even without hearing the full idea of this 50-year cycle. Yeah, there's going to be backlash and we're seeing that right now because many people, I think most people, I want to believe that most people are on board with progress, but those in power or rather, and I think we've seen a lot of this past five years, those that have con been convinced they're in power or that they're they're the superior whether it's the superior race or the superior kind of person, they mm -hmm. think they're in, they think they're in power, but they're not. But when they see that they're losing more of more of the pie, as it were, yeah, they're going to kick back and they're going to push back on things that. How are you pushing back on this? Why are we having to fight about this in 2021? Voter suppression laws, voting, like. <laughs> How are we pushing back on this? But they're just scrambling for dear life. They think they're losing. They don't understand, again, that a rising tide raises all ships. They don't understand that this is a good thing, that there is equality. They don't understand that there's always going to be enough for everyone. They're not losing anything, but they think they're losing something. They think they're losing their current way of life. And so they're scrambling. And I, I, I mean, when, how I, many millions of dollars does it take to live a good life? Let's just be, I mean, at some point you just don't even feel the difference anymore. That's at least my, my perception that after you hit about, I don't know, hundred million, can you really feel the, <laughs> the difference? And so why not think about the rest of humanity and making investments there. I love, I love how the wives of Jeff Bezos, ex-wives, Jeff yep. Bezos, and now Bill Gates, they they seem to be saying, well, gosh, maybe you know, 50 million is enough for me, and I can put the other 400 million dollars I've got from the divorce settlement into something that really transforms people's lives. Yeah. I mean, so Mac yeah. Mackenzie Scott, Mackenzie, yeah. she's, she's, she is outgiving Bezos by, you know, many fold. Um, I mean, the statistic, if I'm not wrong, is like the threshold is $80,000. If you make more than $80,000, it doesn't like, you're no happier at 80,000 or 80 million. Sure. You can buy more shit and you can buy more, you know, you can, you can buy your way into certain rooms and positions, but happiness contented like the contentedness that we need to feel in life it doesn't change from 81,000 to 81 million like we just need our basic needs met we need a good community and a good family around us and yeah i'm i'm hoping i feel very i generally feel hopeful that this is the generation that is going to change things around because this also is the generation that is sick and tired on the one hand but also just sick and tired of all the 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 gatekeepers and the the just the bullshit that we've had to, that we grew up to to we were told this is true and that's true and this is just how things are Nick we're done with that we're tired of that and put that, put on top of that we don't need as many things we don't need all of the frills and the thrills all the security that our parents and grandparents needed or thought that they needed and so we're willing to sacrifice we're willing to risk we're willing to you know. Uh, be arrested in protests. We're willing to, you look back at the March in Washington in the 60s with Dr. King, it was mostly black people and a few white people sprinkled it. It was like 99% black people that showed up. Now you saw all the, the protests last year. I mean, it was all colors. It was all shapes. It was all it sizes. Was. They were, people are willing, young people are willing to put their bodies, you know, on the line 
to say, no more, this is done. Why are we still fighting about this? This is so stupid. Like we need to be done with this. So I feel hopeful when I see- You should. On the one hand with the Mackenzie Scotts saying, I don't need, I hope that's what she's saying with all this giving that she's doing. I don't need all that money. All the way down to the young people with no money and they don't care because they just want to do the right thing. So I feel hopeful and I'm, I'm glad you agree. Well, hey, you you should pay attention to the mayoral race here in Tacoma. There's a there's a young, or maybe she's thirty, something running against an incumbent mayor. Both African American women. Yep. But uh, it's this young activist generation that's saying, "Look, we're sick and tired of the way you all make decisions, our government leaders, and they're activating other eighteen to thirty somethings." getting them registered to vote, using Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat and Clubhouse, you know, all of this technology to get their messaging out in a way that you and I probably, I mean, I don't, I I don't even know how to use half of the technology that they use, but um, I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And it's a group that 18 to 35 year old group they were our top target audience at the IBJ last week. Amazing. Amazing. So let's let's dive into right now. Uh, we've been hinting at it with different, you know, you talked about the symposium you just talked about, you know, last week. Let's dive into the 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 firing that pushed <laughs> you, that pushed you into your into your purpose as you as you called it a few minutes ago you know you don't have to get into details if you don't want to but like what happened that caused you a few months ago to leave what you were doing against your will maybe uh to launch the institute for black justice yeah well um john lowry our mutual friend and i were working together at a job that i thought was my dream job at Metro Parks Tacoma. I had gone back to graduate school specifically to to get a master's in organizational systems renewal because I knew I didn't wanna really practice law in the traditional way. I I wanted my legal training, especially my research and writing skills to be applied to the work that I did. But I really just wanted to, to be in a much more generative therapy therapeutic uh, environment where I could try some things. I wanted to test out some of the theories I had just learned at Seattle University. I wanted to put it into practice and see if this stuff actually worked. And Metro Parks was my first laboratory for doing that. John uh, went through my individual development program for young leaders and did. he was spectacular because John is, is just a great human being. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, and now has gone on to bigger and better things. But while I was there, I get a phone call from um, the employer who fired me into my purpose, ultimately. <laughs> I got a phone call that said, hey, uh, you know, we're building up a team over here at Pierce County and we want you to be part of it. And here's a whole bunch of money to come and do it. And you'll be in charge of justice. I'm thinking justice. What? Mm. Whoa, whoa, that's a big word, justice. Um, but what it ultimately did was give me a really clear understanding of the impact of behavioral health 
meaning mental health, substance use, and incarceration. So how, how one broken system, behavioral health, contributes to another broken system, mass incarceration. And even prior to the breakdown in that behavioral health system, family systems and the impact on young children of their parents' own untreated trauma and untreated substance use, for example, and poverty, that those systems were contributing to what I saw in the Pierce County justice system quite directly. You could, you could almost track it from hmm. the jail if you stepped back a couple of, of steps in a person's lives, person's life, you could see the trajectory from early childhood trauma, use starting at 12, 13, 14, to juvenile justice system, to adult justice system. And so I wanted to interrupt that, that trajectory. I wanted to do something to intervene. And uh, that opportunity, that job gave me a chance to to do real transformational life changing changing mm-hmm. work my brother james's experience in with incarceration was part of my motivation for mm-hmm. leaving my fun job of my dreams at metro parks and taking on the gritty un, unpleasant you know sometimes really difficult side of justice but what happened as i operated inside of that new system and started trying to intervene, what I saw was a a pretty corrupt, that's the word I would use, way of operating that um, I, frankly, my value system coming out of a system of thinking about humanity, being concerned about the whole community, I couldn't function well in a system that felt so selfish and um, frankly felt as if it favored the people who were operating at the very top to the disadvantage of those who had no voice and no power. So, of course, being who I am, I started to speak out against some of that selfishness, some of that self-dealing, and that did not go over well. And so after three and a half years, I got a phone call, a three minute phone call ended my career um, in such a a disturbing way, just Hmm. three minutes. And today's your last day over the phone. You can't come clean out your office. You know, don't call us. We'll call you. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Wow. (laughs) And I can laugh about it now. Because it was so outrageous the way it was done, so disrespectful in the midst of COVID to not have health insurance at all, um, to suddenly have a six-figure income gone. And, um, And yet, I'm still in the same house. I'm still driving the same car because I like to tell people they could take my position, but they cannot take my purpose. Mm. They could, you know, they could they could take away the job, but they can't quiet my voice. It just cannot be done. And so I began to listen 
to some really influential, supportive friends of mine who said, well, why can't you just keep doing what you were doing, um, but just start your own thing? And I thought back to my, to my Nana Ruby. It's like, okay, this woman had a third grade education and she was able to be entrepreneurial. So what's wrong with you? You have a Juris Doctor, a master's in organizational systems and a BA in sociology. Put all of that to work and do something new, create a new thing, something that has never existed before. And so we birthed the Institute for Black Justice nine months ago. Actually, I would say I became impregnated. <laughs> <laughs> Nine it months takes ago. a while. It takes and, a while. And we birthed that baby uh, this last week on June 28th through 30th. We birthed what I call a dream, uh, a dream of true justice, no exceptions. And our mission is to relentlessly pursue equity and justice for all with Black African-American families as our first priority because frankly, they're still fairly close to the bottom of that humanity hierarchy that operates in the United States. I, I, I love these kinds of stories where something seemingly, or something that the universe meant for bad, right? Mm -hmm. uh, turns out to be the thing that launches us into, you know, maybe the thing that you're going to do for the rest of your life, right? Or it's going to at least be the foundation for other things you're going to do. Um, I love that so much. Uh, I'm living a version of that right now myself, and we don't, we won't get into that, but I love, I love that story. Uh, relentlessly pursue equity and justice for all. I'm a thousand percent on board with that, but there's also a million different versions of that, right? So what right. is that? Let's get specific for a minute and talk about, you know, the three A's, right? Advocate, accelerator, accomplice. Uh, how, how is the Institute for Black Justice going to, and again, this is all new for you, right? So I don't expect you to have it all figured out, right? This is a, a work in progress, which I'm so excited to see the fruit of for, you know, weeks and months and years to come. But how do you you all see this uh, growing and how do you all see the work that you're doing kind of setting up, setting yourselves apart from other work that's being done, right? Not that you're trying to create something new because justice, on the one hand, a lot of people talk equity and justice for all. Uh, uh, but also that's not a bad thing. And you don't, you know, there's only so many ways to do that. Right. Uh, so how do you all see, yeah. How are you adding to that conversation in this space? Well, there are four, I would say four pathways that we travel down and we're not trying to be all things to everyone. Because yes. we, we're yes. our size, we're really small. We don't even have any paid full-time employees yet. I have not been paid by my organization since I started it. Um, but God has provided. The universe has provided. So I'm, Love I'm really pleased about that. Um, so those four pathways, number one, we started this really <laughs> kind of... Uh, elementary school podcast, Nick. And so you do this for a living. And so if you could see what we were putting up initially, you would just laugh because it was so raw and unpolished and had no professional support whatsoever for it. 
But I had spent 17 years doing local, you know, city TV, doing a little city TV show. So I had some idea about how to format a, a show and how to buy a decent microphone and a light or two. And that's, you should see my studio. That's, that's where we launched I love it. the Black Robe podcast. That's what it's called, the Black Robe. And it's based on the premise that we wanted to put on that robe that judges wear when they step into a courtroom. We put that robe around the, the Black community of Tacoma and Pierce County. Mm. And we let them sit in the judge's seat and judge whether or not justice happened, whether or not equity and equality is happening. And so we're pretty critical of our local city and county government and state government. And even further, you know, nationally, if we see something that we think is unjust happening, it'll be on our Facebook page and we'll talk about it on the podcast. So that's one. The second thing that I'm really proud of and um, I think is where the transformational work or transformative work is happening is in our family advocacy. It's called CHIMES, which is an acronym for the communities here to intervene for more equitable solutions, mm. CHIMES. Um, and we, we take mostly mothers, some fathers who are in the child welfare system meaning they've had their children removed and placed into protective custody by the state and are trying to get their children back, get their families put back together. You would not believe how poorly some of these mothers are treated by that system. They have no family support of any significance. No one believes that they are worthy of having their children returned. Wow. And so what we've done is just become their big sisters, their aunties, um, and we just love on them and give them some of the things that they need to make sure that they can qualify, if you will, to have their children returned. So, for example, today, when I finish talking with you, I, I'm going down to show this mom how to use an Uber card. We bought her a $200 Uber card because her car broke down. She couldn't get to visit. She couldn't get to the grocery store. And so I have to show her how to use an Uber card. <laughs> I mean, but, but that's what we do. Or when her car broke down, hey, she called the tow truck. We paid for the tow to get the car off the freeway. We're going to buy some bedding for her seven-year-old's bed because she doesn't have decent sheets and blankets for the bed. We're gonna clean her carpets to make sure that when the social workers come through to do a walkthrough, the carpets don't look and smell like the little hamster that runs around in there. So Chimes is really, that's where my heart lies. Uh, but the podcast I think is the fun part of what we do. And then the, the, the other piece that I cannot forget is why we talked about this symposium earlier. We are committed to creating a whole new generation of young adult social justice leaders. And the way that we do that is through a two and a half day symposium. We kicked off our first one, June 28, 29, 30. 
And it was small, but powerful. And that scripture, despise not the day of small things, keeps coming to me because I, I can just feel that it was the right design. Love we'll it. be working with uh, young adults who are using uh, human-centered design to solve social justice challenges. So stay tuned for more on that. And then the fourth thing is we're always here for consulting on organizations that want to create an anti-racist set of policies and practices. We're here to help with that. For like incredible things like the the four parts of what you're doing uh the podcast the black robe podcast chimes mm -hmm. family advocacy mm -hmm. this just social justice organizational consulting and then mm -hmm. the young adult social justice leadership development that is so much work and yeah. very worthy work like they all of those like it, it seems like when you know as you started describing all the different things that that are being done they all it, it all seems like a really great puzzle that is coming together because it's it's four really great things that create holistic change i think i mean the the way that you describe the family advocacy the chimes just really great community is here intervening for more equitable solutions it's supporting people in need by showing up like that's such a simple concept but it's everything to people that are used to people not showing up for them that's yes. everything just showing up. I mean, these, the things you just described now that's money, right? And you guys have to figure out how to sustain this thing. Right. And that's the, that's the challenge, but simple things like, Hey, your car broke down. Nobody's showing up for her. We need to get, right. the, we need to get the car off the highway so we can see if we can get it repaired. But in the meantime, here's an Uber card. All of that is, is might seem like it's small, you know, there's small actions in, 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 in real time. But that is transformational. That's that's life transformation that's happening. Um, and, you know, I, I love in the description on the website, showing up in court to observe court administration. Like even that, right? Like court is such an intimidating place where the person that is being judged, looked down upon, is being examined. That is a very intimidating place to be, especially women and children. Uh, and to have someone show up to just be that person that is going to call call the court on their bullshit if it ever arises. That is so important because that person might not feel in the moment or ever feel like they could speak up on their behalf because they feel so intimidated, so downtrodden, so beaten down by the system. Having someone there to show up and speak on their behalf um, or just to be a presence in the room. Maybe, they, maybe you don't even have to ever have to speak, open your mouth, but you're there. They know you're there. They're not going to pull a fast yes. one because they know you're there watching it. That's so, so, so important. And you know um, what the great irony is of that, Nick, is I know all of these judges from when I worked in, in the county justice system. So yes. they know exactly who I am and what I stand for. And so when my face shows up on the Zoom call, I can see them looking like, well, what the hell is she doing? Yep. <laughs> what is she doing here? Today and is not I the day like to pull it. a fast one. <laughs> exactly. We also try to explain to the moms and dads what's happening because sure. courts and lawyers speak a different language. And it's meant to be confusing to people who don't operate in that system. 
these moms are so upset. They're without their babies. This one mom, she has two little twins that are only two years old and a seven-year-old who just were just taken while she was trying to get some health needs met. They were, you know, taken out of the house. She comes home. There's no, her babies are gone. Wow. And so they're already traumatized, scared. Uh, their family members are criticizing them for allowing this to happen. There are reports with all any. How would you like it if somebody came into your home and wrote down that your every single thing that you had failed to do that day is the reason why they're taking your children? Nobody wants to have that kind of scrutiny applied to their lives. And then it's all broadcast out in a courtroom environment where all of these strange mostly white people are listening in, judging and shaking their heads and looking down their noses at these young, mostly black moms who themselves have been in foster care, many of them, yep. Yep. or were abandoned by their own mothers and fathers as children. So haven't really had much of a role model for how you do parenting well. That's what we're trying to intervene into. Uh, not that we are the perfect parents or perfect examples, but perfect love casts out fear. And so we just hug on them and love on them and pray for them. You know, if, if they don't believe in anything, that's okay. We just speak words of encouragement and positivity over them and try to keep their spirits up as they go through this war. I love it would be great. It'd be great to be able to expand that program. But, you know, right now we only have five volunteers yep. and only enough money for two. Step by step, <laughs> step by step, right? Like, right. Um, the, 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 the most successful companies, organizations, projects that I know of are those that were cultivated and built and grown uh, with lots and lots of patience. The, yes. the, I, I'm very, I'm so glad, like even my organization, let's give a damn, you know, we're working on a TV show. We've got the podcast, trying to write a book. We're launching the nonprofit. Like even this little thing, it's not like the, when I started it, the, the, the part of me that the part of everyone that wants to see their thing grow really rapidly, uh, like, the, you know, this thing hasn't grown. It's not huge. It's not massive. But I'm glad for that because what I think is happening is that this thing is growing really slowly and the right people are getting involved and the right conversations are happening. The right things are being built in the right time. And that's, I think, going to be good, better in the long run versus something that might like, you know, blow up and go viral. Uh, uh, I feel bad for projects and things and people that go viral because you don't get to, I mean, nothing grows. I mean, let's talk, let's go back to the word viral. Viruses are bad. Like things that go quickly, <laughs> like, like versus, versus me looking out the window and seeing these trees, right? This firm tree that can withstand a hurricane, uh, 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 is a tree that is 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old, not a little sapling that's one year old and only has roots a few inches deep. Right. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that this thing is going to uh, uh, grow um, and do well uh, under your leadership and under the team that you're building. Um, 
Thank you. I'll, I'll, I receive those words yes. of positivity. Do I it. Receive that and say it's done. These programs that you're building in this podcast, I love the idea of the podcast, the concept of the robe, you know, and and the and the the people that you're serving actually sitting in the judge's seat to say because because we can convince ourselves, right? As and, and I say we again, maybe not me specifically, but our politicians and our you know judges and the people in authority can convince themselves really easily. Hey, this is a successful program. We we did well here. We did. But how about go ask the people? Do you feel cared for? Do you feel seen? Did this work? Um, that's the real. That's the real judge there. Not our numbers on paper necessarily, or the data that we, you know, the very select few data points that we gathered so that would make us feel good. No, go out there and talk to the people. Did this thing work? So I love the idea. I'm going to go listen to that podcast because I know that I have a lot to learn uh, there <laughs> hey, from you all. It's, uh, it's di- no, no, no. I think uh, if, hey, you, uh, we consider ourselves students. Uh, so we want to learn from you and Reverend Lennox Yearwood with The Coolest Show. We're watching how you all do things. And someday we want to be you when we grow up. <laughs> but um, I, I, I want to say that there was a guiding principle, Nick, that, that I think was fundamental, at least for me, when we launched the IBJ nine months or so ago. And by the way, we did, we did get our 501c3 nonprofit status in Amazing. April, Congrats. Um, which took six months. And that was like an excruciating waiting period. Yep. But uh, our guiding principle was we are not going to be perfect, but we're just going to start and we'll perfect it as we do it. Because you know what perfection does, right? It, it just slows down the process of, of actually getting in there and making things happen. So I, I try not to hold too tightly to perfection and let that get in the way of just going. But it's going to be fun, I think, five years from now to go back and look at some of our early work and to shake our heads and go, oh, my God, <laughs> that was so bad. And then compare it to what happens when we can uh, afford to have much more professional production and microphones and all of that with us. Yeah. Uh, but the messaging, the intergenerational dialogue, I think that piece has been extremely successful and it's what we were intending. We wanted to have a space for intergenerational dialogue about issues of justice and equity for black folk. And we created that out of nothing. I love it. I love it. Okay. As we begin to wrap up here, you've been so gracious to give me an hour and a half of your time. Um, we, we try to emphasize, you know, within the let's give a damn community, I always talk about there's three tiers to giving a damn number. And, and these are in order. Number one is you've got to give a damn about yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. If not, you're going to burn out. You're not going to be uh, healthy physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all the leaves. You're not going to be uh, uh, strong enough, uh, healthy enough to, you know, uh, uh, run the long race. And number two is give a damn about each other. Those are the people in your inner circle, your coworkers, your family, your neighbors, the people that are, you're going to pour into them, they're going to pour into you. And then, and then when you do those things well, you're ready to give a damn about others. 
That's the wider world, many of whom are never going to reciprocate the the favor, the work, right? They're just, you're, you're, you're giving to them, but you're healthy enough to give to them because you did the hard work at the front end. So in, in the spirit of, uh, uh, you know, because you've done so many incredible things in your career and you're doing this, you know, new thing now, in the spirit of trying to uh, help people give a damn about themselves, I want to ask you, and I don't know where you're at on this journey, uh, but like, how do you? uh, stay healthy in your life? How are you, and I'm talking not just physical health, but mental, spiritual, emotional, how are you making sure that Carol Mitchell is ready each and every day for the challenges that are ahead and not again, not burn out in five years, but, but be Mm -hmm. ready for the, be ready for the next 25, right? Uh, How are you doing that for yourself to prepare yourself for the work that you're doing? Well, I think, uh, I, I end where I began this conversation deeply connected to my sense of faith and to my family, that those are, that's my root system. That's what holds me in the storm. And I am really fortunate to have women friends. And I I mean, certainly I have men in my life too now. I don't, (laughs) plenty of them, but (laughs) women friends in particular that if I am upset about something, feeling as if I can't do it alone, can't make it, they sustain me. Every Friday morning, I have a meeting of the minds with two of my longtime women friends, and we just talk by Zoom for a half an hour. I'm also a fan of uh, Deepak Chopra's meditation. I sign on to a meditation every morning, usually around 8.30 in the morning, and people all over the world are meditating together. I am a proponent of eating well. Uh, I'm a Southern girl, so I I have to fight the tendency to want to have fried chicken and potato salad. Uh, But I eat right out of my own little garden in the backyard, which is what my mother taught us to do. It's to eat out of the ground as much as possible. And I don't fry, you know, I don't eat a lot of fatty, greasy, salty food uh, for that reason. The final thing I guess I would say is that every day I find time for praise and worship. And people can, you know, frame that however it works well for them. And my praise and worship includes music and dance because I, you know, hey, you know, that's I the love culture it. I came out of. Yeah. So I am, I am dancing, I'm listening to music, and I am doing praise and worship. And I try to carry a spirit of gratitude for every good thing, my opinion, and every bad thing that comes, that presents itself to me. Uh, I'm just grateful every day for the opportunity and especially for an opportunity like this to be visible, to be heard. Nick, I really appreciate the opportunity you've given us today. Thank you for that. Of course, of course. No, this was, this was my pleasure. Uh, Prayer, praise, gratitude, Mm -hmm. meditation, eating well. Those are all super key things. You mentioned many of those are things that I uh, uh, do every single day as well. And we've got to be, we've got to be prepared for the unknown things ahead. 
And because we don't know what those things are, that's what unknown means. We've got to be vigilant and we've, our, our, our bodies, our minds, our spirits have to be in tip top shape or we're going to miss a lot of things right as well. Um, and so I know you're healthy because it doesn't seem like you're missing a lot. And I'm sure you, you know, we all have room to grow, but just, I, 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 I feel a sense of, of overall health. You know, when John introduced you and I, you know, he said, I've, one of the ways he described you was she's so articulate. She's so articulate and can articulate who she is and what she's doing really, really well. And that's an important thing that comes from health. People that are unhealthy don't have the clarity of mind to speak and to convey what we're about and who we are very well. And you've done that very well. And so I just want to encourage people to uh, uh, check out who you are, what you're doing. I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. Obviously people will be able to find wow. out what you're doing. And thank um, you. What a gift. Of course. And I'm excited. I'm going to be personally, I'm going to be following what you're doing for a long time because I think it's, I think it's really, really great. Um, and so keep in touch. Thanks for the time today. This was really, really fun. Thank you so very much. That is all for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending time with Carol and me today. To learn more about Carol Mitchell and the Institute for Black Justice, visit instituteforblackjustice.org. And to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm so grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.